It's reported that once when uh, Prince Charles and Diana were still married, Diana once looked at Charles over the breakfast table and said, you know, there are three of us in this marriage. And she, of course, meant Camilla. And when I was working on Anne's Kantorowicz for quite a while, uh, my wife looked at me at the breakfast table and she said, you know, there are three of us in this marriage. And she meant Anne Skandorovich. <laughs> so, why was I so absorbed? I can give you the flavor of it from an interview that I had with Princeton Press on the occasion of their publishing my biography. I told them my subject, Ernst Kantorowicz, author of celebrated works in history, was wounded at the Battle of Verdun in 1916, fought against Red Revolutionaries in Munich in 1919, was a prominent member of a bizarre poetic circle in Germany during the Weimar era, spoke publicly in opposition to Nazism in 1933, eluded Gestapo arrest in 1938, led a fight against the McCarthyite Board of Regents at the University of California in 1949-1950, and was a central personality at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Moreover, he was a major intellectual figure of the 20th century who wrote The King's Two Bodies, one of the most influential history books of the 20th century. Is that enough? I said to the interviewer. <laughs> and I found when the book was published, it was just published uh, around the first of this year, so it's only been out for two and a half months. Um, I got, I'm pleased to say, a lot of comments, uh, letters, and reviews. Um, and a medievalist uh, wrote to me, uh, a prominent medievalist, to say that The King's Two Bodies was one of the four books that made me a medieval historian. Hoisinger's Waning of the Middle Ages, Auerbach's Mimesis, Courtius's European Literature in the Latin Middle Ages, and The King's Two Bodies. And he went on to say, I suppose that it changed many other careers as well as mine. And this from a stranger, it is evident from your knowledge, from your acknowledgments regarding how many of your interlocutors have passed away that a biography of Kantorovich remotely resembling this one in its depth and wealth of detail simply wouldn't be possible were one to attempt such a project now. I'm very glad and indeed grateful that you did and saw it through. Well, I've written this book, and I'm averse to repeating what I've already written. I don't like sitting, listening to a lecture, read from his book. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it's important for me, to me, to talk about things that are not in my book. But I, what I'd like to do first, because it's, I think, rather intriguing, but before I do that, two photos of and it's Kantorovich. I start with this. This is more formal Kantorovich sitting at his desk at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. He was a very natty dresser and always wore a flare in his vest pocket. Uh, and this is a more uh, informal photo of Enes Kantorovich uh, uh, with a student of his on an outing. 
but this was a man who never was seen in public uh, without a tie and a very uh, natty coat. Um, what I wanted to tell you before I, I uh, start talking about Ernst Kondrovich's work is uh, it's a series of experiences I had in writing the book uh, and uh, exemplifies certain pitfalls in writing a book. I'm going to say writing a book on somebody called Kondrovich, and that sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? How many people write books on somebody called Kondrovich? Not many, uh, and in the, in the United States, it's not a common name. Uh, in fact, most of the Kantoroviches who came to the United States changed their name to Kent. Uh, some, some of them changed their name to Kant. Uh, Kantorovich was just too unwieldy. It means son of the Cantor, uh, and in Germany, uh, it, uh, as you'll hear, uh, was a sufficiently uh, common name. Uh, and so, uh, when I was working on Anz Kantorovich, I first ran into the account that when Kantorovich uh, had to find some sort of livelihood after he uh, was barred from teaching, and he was barred from teaching because he was Jewish in 1933, he was invited to Oxford this uh, very town, if you pardon me calling Oxford a town, uh, uh, New College, Oxford. And he um, stayed there for uh, six months and he got to meet a number of people who became very important in his subsequent career uh, and he became very friendly with the, the leading one was C.M. Bauer, who uh, became his closest friend. There were historians subsequently who said that Kondrovich's invitation to Oxford had been a guff on the part of New College, a terrible mistake. They didn't mean Ernst Kondrovich, they meant Hermann Kondrovich. And that's Hermann Kondrovich. Uh, and the story was that, and it's why I fell for it before I actually uh, found the documentation that showed that it was wrong, Hermann Kantorovich was one of the rare German professors who uh, favored uh, getting along with the French and the English, uh, favored the Weimar Republican system, uh, and uh, was a liberal. Uh, Ernst Kantorovich was a far right winger at the time uh, who uh, is reputed to have said, right of me is only the wall. Uh, and he uh, was a disciple of Stefan Georga, who uh, had, didn't mind at least, uh, people calling him Führer. He popularized the, the term Führer. Uh, and in addition to that, he uh, uh, patronized a cult of young men who uh, believed in the secret Germany, ultra-nationalist. So it didn't seem right that New College would have invited Ernst Kantorowicz in 1934. It was more plausible that they would have invited Hermann Kantorowicz. And so a number of historians said, you know, Ernst Kantorowicz only eked out a, a, a sustenance because of a bunch of really ill-informed dons mixing up the first names. Uh, that was wrong. I did find that the documentation shows 
uh, connection and has to do with a Warburg Institute that had just come over to uh, uh, London at that very time and the people in the Warburg Institute knew Ernst Kantorowicz, knew his important work on Frederick II and recommended him to New College Oxford. As it happened, uh, uh, I forgot the title, uh, New College doesn't have a, a Master of Warden, a President, I'm not sure. Anyway, it's the equivalent of the, the Master of New, uh, New College was H.A.L. Uh, Fisher, who was a very important historian uh, and also knew Ernst Kantorowicz. So anyway, I almost fell for it, but I uh, straightened it out. Then came the real, just, just minefield. It turns out there, there were two Ernst Kantorowiczs. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, they were direct contemporaries. Uh, and in fact, they were both professors. Uh, although the other Ernst Kantorowicz taught a somewhat different field, he taught pedagogy but he taught pedagogy on the university level. And nightmare of nightmares, they both taught at the University of Frankfurt within a, a close enough period of time. And so more than once, I was reading about Ernst Kontrovich, and this is amazing. This is, I mean, did he really do that? Uh, and then I realized it wasn't my Ernst Kontrovich, it was the other Ernst Kontrovich. Uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of humorous. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say that the story of the other Ernst Kantorowicz ends in a by no means hum humorous fashion. This is the other Ernst Kantorowicz. And this is a still from one of the most, I would say, alienating movies that was ever made. It's a movie that was made by the Nazi Propaganda Bureau in 1944 called Der Führer schenkt die Juden eine Stadt. Uh, it was about the Theresien, Theresienstadt, can't call it a concentration camp, Theresienstadt was a, a small city uh, to which mostly German Jews, prominent German Jews had been deported. Uh, and they lived under terrible circumstances, as you can imagine. But in 1944, there was an attempt on the part of the Nazis to mend some fences. And they knew that the Red Cross would be coming through. And so they brought in books. They lined uh, shelves of books. Uh, and they gave the Jews who were there musical instruments so that they could play in an orchestra. And they filmed this movie, uh, the Führer grants the Jews the city. The director of the movie was one of the many German Jews who uh, had been transported to Theresienstadt, uh, Kurt Geron, who created the role of the man who sings in the three-penny opera, Mac the Knife. He was one of the leading entertainers of the Weimar period. He was Jewish. He couldn't get out. And they had him uh, film uh, this movie, awful movie. Uh, uh, sometimes you, you can see it on YouTube. And you, you, you'll see the, uh, the Jews busily working, uh, uh, having intellectual discussions, 
Jewish uh, orchestra playing uh, soccer or volleyball or what have you. Uh, and I'm sorry to say, uh, and I put this second because the third one brings us back into the realm of real humor. Uh, I'm sorry to say that shortly after the film was made, all of these people were shipped to Auschwitz and exterminated, including the other Anskontrovich. Well, my book was reviewed in the New York Times. And let me tell you, when your book is reviewed, and it was a favorable review, uh, and I was delighted, needless to say, I never expected my book to be reviewed in the New York Times in the first place. It was a, a, a full dress review in the New York Times. And um, the reviewer made a mistake at the end. He said, at the end, after recounting the entire life of Ernst Contreras, which was, he was able to uh, uh, learn about from my book, he uh, said that Ernst Kondrovich had some very disagreeable features. Uh, he was an opportunist uh, and um, he cited a letter by Walter Benjamin to a friend of his from 1938 saying that Kondrovich, he knows how to float to the surface like a cork uh, and uh, even though he's a communist uh, he managed to get himself an invitation uh, uh, to a prominent and well-paying position. No, no, no. First of all, Valda Benjamin didn't know Mayans Kantorovich, and second of all, Mayans Kantorovich was anything but a communist. Uh, the reviewer uh, just made a mistake, and uh, we traced it and tracked it down, and he wasn't talking about Herman Kantorovich, he wasn't talking about the other Ernst Kantorovich, he was talking about Alfred Kantorovich, who was in fact a communist, uh, uh, fought in the Spanish Civil War, uh, and then uh, uh, knew how, in fact, as Benjamin, Benjamin hated him, uh, uh, managed to survive, uh, and uh, went to America, and when they founded the German Democratic Republic, he went to the German Democratic Republic. Uh, to, to his credit, he became a critic, and he left the German Democratic uh, Republic. The, Facial resemblance of Alfred Kantorovich and Ernst Kantorovich is significant. Uh, and Ernst Kantorovich once saw the photo of this man be hated because they didn't share any ideas or ideals at all. Uh, and he thought, well, it's too bad. Well, we look so much like each other. So the, a letter was written to the New York Times pointing out the error. <laughs> Uh, two weeks later, and the Times corrected it, uh, uh, so the, the new version of the review has a little note, the original issue, uh, the original review. So you're wondering now, uh, am I just telling you a bunch of stories, uh, uh, and it's time for me to uh, get to my hands controversy. And as I said, I don't want to talk about what's in my book. So what I'm going to talk about first is his methods course, and it leads me easily into talking about a related uh, subject to the methods course. So people in Great Britain, I've come to understand, are not familiar with the concept of a graduate methods course. Graduate students in the United States in history, I, I, I have to limit this to history, are required to take a methods course. 
it's part of the curriculum. Graduate students, unlike English graduate students, have to take a, a full load of courses before they start working on their PhD. And um, customarily, methods courses fall into one of two categories. Uh, one category is really method, uh, sort of getting the dirt under your fingernails uh, by everybody being assigned a, a book and their uh, requirement is to check all the footnotes in the book to see whether they're right or whether the author was kind of crossing his finger and hoping that nobody would notice. Uh, but more than that, looking at the footnotes to see what else he might have written that he didn't, what, he, what else he might have read that he didn't uh, read, that he didn't cite, looking at bibliographies and so on, and coming up at the end with a paper about the methods of writing on this particular subject. That would be an example of a methods course in history. Uh, the much more common uh, model of the methods course is reading a bunch of books. Uh, but the bunch of books, this second category can be divided into two parts. Uh, uh, in one case, uh, one strategy for this would be uh, reading the classics. Uh, so it might even be reading Thucydides and Tacitus. Nowadays, that's, that's not too likely. Uh, but it would go on at least to some of the great 20th century historians. And I suppose it w would vary a little on who's teaching it, but I could imagine that Namier would be on, on the list, uh, the methods, the strategies, and criticisms of Namier and uh, Hobbesbaum. You get the idea if you're concentrating in English uh, history. Uh, so that you'd see uh, the development of historiography and the various strategies. Uh, much more common uh, as a, a model of the methods course would be the, I have to say, sexy books. Uh, the books that you're supposed to know right now because everybody's talking about them. And that would also then depend on the teacher because sometimes it would be the, the teacher's favorite recent books, the books that have come out in the last 10, 15, or 20 years uh, that the teacher really likes. Uh, or else it could be really theory, uh, and that could start with Max Weber, I suppose, uh, and more often go to the obvious French uh, theorists, uh, uh, Foucault and Bourdieu and uh, Lacan, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Contraverge methods course is like nothing I knew about. And before I go further into it, let me say that this is a source that you and other people I've lectured to are among the first to see, and you will, you will see some of it visually. Backtracking a bit. Uh, in writing about Anne Skantrovich, one has to deal with the fact that there's an enormous amount of source material. He was an extremely prolific letter writer. Uh, uh, and some of his correspondence he wrote to more or less every other day. Uh, 
And then he had a, a very busy publishing career, so his published works are. In my case, I went further by interviewing. And I started this long time ago. So I was able to find people who knew him and uh, had stories to tell about Anne's Controvers and give me various in insights into his career. Uh, and then he left a series of lecture texts. And here I'm not talking about lecture notes, but texts, uh, because he didn't want to take chances. He wanted to lecture. He lectured from his script because he wanted to make sure that he was going to say exactly what he wanted to say. And so he wrote out his, he actually typed his lectures, and they are preserved too. They haven't been published, but uh, his lectures in medieval history are, are fascinating and witty because he was an enormously witty man. Um, and then uh, during the Second World War, he lectured to uh, an army training uh, program. So he also lectured in modern history, even though he was a medieval historian. For that, it was necessary for him to lecture. Uh, uh, he was asked to lecture on uh, Italian history and, and German history. And all those notes are, are available. I asked uh, uh, somebody who, who, who was familiar with all this material, uh, well, are there any notes for his graduate courses? And the answer was, well, no, because he didn't lecture in graduate courses. Uh, they were discussions, and so uh, there were no scripts, and there was nothing in the main Kantorovich uh, repository in New York. Uh, but I discovered Kantorovich's notes for his methods course, and pleased to say that I discovered because I think it's a really marvelous source. Uh, and his strategy for doing a methods course, as I say, was unique. It was the value of X for the study of history. And X was filled in by a list of terms that he gave to the class at the beginning of the course. Uh, and then each student was to work up the topic, the value of X for the study of history. He gave this lecture course at Berkeley uh, for three years, 1948 to 1950. And there are his notes. So we'll uh, move on from Alfred Kantorovich to uh, this, unfortunately, is not very clear, so I can uh, tell you what's, what's there. The value, the first one, is law for the study of history. Uh, at that time, nobody was studying law uh, for the study of history. The statutes, indeed, but Kantorovich was the first to go to the glossators, uh, the legists, the writers on legal theory. He collected legal maxims in his King's Two Bodies, uh, the proliferation of legal maxims is so great that there's a whole long entry in the index of the, the legal maxims. Uh, uh, you know, quod principi placuit is a, a legal maxim, but his were much, much more uh, varied. And uh, the, the value of medicine for the study of history. 
so far not particularly unusual, but we get more interesting uh, topics, the value of ecology for the study of history. Now, this is really breathtaking because this was in 1948 or 1949. The word ecology was hardly on anybody's lips. I believe that if you were to look at the OED, you would see that the word ecology only has a few uses uh, before the year 48 or uh, 49, uh, but he was into it. Uh, and he, he had a friend, Lynn White, who then uh, wrote uh, the most important essay on ecology and uh, Western Christianity and argued that, uh, I don't want to go into his argument, but it's, it's a landmark uh, uh, article, but he was led to it by uh, Kantorowicz. Uh, the value of philology uh, for medieval history, um, the value of botany, um, uh, value and limitations of economic interpretation. Each one of these was a, a topic given to, to students. Um, uh, chance, uh, I'm going to move down. Number nine is postage stamps, and I will come back to that. Um, genetics, 1984, remember this was 19, uh, uh, what did I say, uh, uh, 54. Um, and of course, the idea here was the value of studying uh, dystopias for the study of history. Um, works of art, and Kantorowicz himself did a lot of that. The King's Two Bodies has a whole chapter on an Antonian miniature and lots of, if, if you looked at the King's Two Bodies and you d didn't know who the author was, you might have thought he was a, a, a legal historian or you might have thought he was an art historian. Um, Political theory, geology, astrology, library catalogs, uh, semantics. Uh, and then he wrote in a few others. And one here is a word that I didn't know and most people didn't know. Go around the room. Anybody here know what heliotology is? Probably not. <laughs> That's this one here. I was hoping the, the arrow would show it better. But it's number 24 that he wrote in. Heortology. So what's heortology? I had to go and, and find somebody who knew what heortology is. I want to make sure I have the definition correct because I don't have it in my, my head. It's the study of ch the church calendar of saints' feasts. It's a fascinating topic for the study of history. Uh, what is the choice of saints on the calendar? Uh, and which are the red letter days? You know our ex uh, expression, this is a real red letter day in history. It comes from the fact that in the uh, calendars, they put the important saints in red. So that was a red letter day. Uh, the study of heortology uh, could be valuable for art, for religious ideology, for group identity, for folklore. All of it would be built into it. Kantorowicz never wrote on uh, heortology, but it gives you an idea of the, the, the way his mind uh, really just, just went all over the place. 
All right, so th this was the list, and these check marks have to do with w which students pick them. So they didn't all pick everything, but it looks like, uh, no, nobody took <laughs> the ortology. Uh, but naval technology, somebody did. <laughs> so then we have his own jottings. And clearly in preparing for a class, he just jotted things down. Uh, he didn't do a lot of preparation because everything was in his mind. And he, ha he had a, an almost omnicompetent mind. Uh, and so he was in the, the area of dating. And so it's the fourth uh, word, uh, the first three in a line, and then we have dating. And uh, what he's written there is the heliacal rising of Sirius. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was saying to myself, is he serious? <laughs> well, I don't know what the heliacal rising of Sirius is. I'm going to go around the room again. Uh, so it turns out, <laughs> it turns out that the star Sirius, which is the brightest star, uh, at certain times of the year can be seen before the rising of the sun. So that's the heliacal rising from the sun, but the preceding uh, of the star Sirius of the sun. And it's, it, the significance is he just had these jottings. So I had to kind of figure out why he, he, he put that down. Uh, the Egyptian calendar, the ancient Egyptian calendar, is based on the heliacal rising of Sirius. Uh, it has to do with the uh, rising and flooding of the Nile. Uh, this is a medieval historian who, who knew things like that and wanted to share with his students. So after that, we have cosmographies. And what he has here is mosaic, aris, Tell, Aristotelian, Ptolemaic. Those are uh, abbreviations, of course. So um, he doesn't say Jewish. He doesn't say Hebrew. He says Mosaic. He grew up uh, uh, in a school where they, they had students of the Mo Mosaic uh, faith as opposed to uh, Hebrew and so on. So he, he kept that concept. But this is, of course, the, the one in which the Earth is at the center of the universe and the sun rotates around the Earth, but that's one of three possibilities. The second is the Copernican. <clears throat> but what he's pointing out is that Plato uh, uh, was a forerunner of Copernicus uh, with Plato's worship of the sun. For uh, Plato, the sun was at the center of the universe. Uh, uh, it had to do with uh, Plato's uh, uh, light mysticism and so on. And then post-Copernican and uh, I'm sorry, well, we uh, can't resurrect him to find out what post-Copernican is, but I wouldn't be surprised if the modern scientists are uh, purveying post-Copernican theories as, as we speak. As I speak, obviously. Um, so then, uh, in addition to these topics, he also liked to talk about method. Uh, and one of his big deals was the importance of detail. You have to look at detail, whatever kind of history you're doing. And he wrote in there, it's down there, der liebe Gott wohnt im Detail. 
a uh, quotation that is uh, uh, attributed to Abhi Warburg and the Warburg school, uh, the dear God dwells in detail. Uh, nowadays people say the devil is in the detail, but Gondor always believed that the dear God <laughs> lives in, in the detail. Uh, and then this is, this is one of his maxims here. And we, we can just imagine scrolling all this stuff down. Uh, observation. Historian, I'm just reading uh, what's written there, um, but it's clear that historian has to observe, he has to read very much, and has to train himself to observe such things as reflect some vital problems. Something seems to mean nothing. If, however, it is constantly recurrent, it obviously had its function. So you're looking for the details, uh, but when you see details coming back and back, then you see that it's not meaningless, it has its function. Uh, he wanted to talk about the arrangement of materials. I found this a very interesting uh, set of data. You, you can see there are, there, there are sheafs of these papers. I would say they're 30 or 35, and I've just selected a, a few. Um, and uh, the top here, which is, is uh, highlighted in yellow, uh, is the heading arrangement of materials. Uh, you can write history chronologically, um, or you can write it systematically. Uh, so that, that's each chapter approaches the subject from a different angle. Uh, I wrote a book like that, and the truth is that I was more or less saying the same thing in each chapter with different material because I was trying to, pardon me, flog a thesis. Uh, and that's what he said, the danger of that is repetition. You're repeating the main idea uh, with different kinds of... Uh, or organic, bring systematic discussion in the moment when the fact becomes important. Uh, uh, if you get to read my biography, I, I hope you might see that I, I was trying to learn from Hans Kondrowicz in this, in this regard. It's chronological, uh, but uh, I tried to bring in a systematic discussion when the fact itself becomes important. Uh, but this is a little more of lighter entertainment, uh, although it shows how worked up he was because in, in the period when he was teaching this course there was an attempt to force the professors at the University of California to sign a loyalty oath and he was one of the even though he had been a far right winger and God forbid he was anything but a communist and he actually said Lord knows I'm not a communist I shot communists he wasn't explicit but he probably meant I killed communists because he was fighting in the street fighting in Munich where uh, people like him were killing communists. In any event, he refused to take the loyalty oath on principle. He thought it was an insult to the academic profession. And so he makes fun of this by saying, one can imagine a committee on unathenian activities, uh, persecution for unex activities recurring and applicable everywhere. Uh, this is happening all the time. Uh, it's a complete absurdity because X is a generalization and creation of our imagination, even more so the un. It could be reverted. And we note here, I have the sick because the, this man was uh, born uh, a German speaker 
And as uh, wonderful as his English prose was, when he was writing quickly, and there's a, a malapropism, he could be reversed. Uh, American to persecute. Socrates was a true Athenian. And then, of course, this is what we have here is self-righteousness, uh, narrowness. Well, just go on. Uh, so you're wondering what that is. And I'll, uh, I'll tell you, one of his topics was the use of postage stamps for the study of history. And he exhibited how one could do this in a lecture he gave, an unpublished lecture, which is a marvelous lecture, marvelous in, in different ways. He was asked to give an after-dinner talk to graduate students in Berkeley. And at first he said, no, he didn't want to do that because this is not a German custom and an after-dinner talk is supposed to be lighthearted, uh, you know, after a heavy meal. You don't want to put people to sleep. You have to try to keep them awake as much, much as possible. Uh, but he finally uh, uh, consented. And as he said in his introduction, in, in the best after-dinner talk style, he said, um, I went around asking people, how do I introduce an after-dinner talk? And uh, people said, well, a good way of doing it is to praise the speaker at last year's after-dinner talk. He said, uh, uh, but I couldn't do this because so-and-so's talk was beyond praise, so I couldn't praise it. It's very impish. Then he moved to his subject. Uh, and I'm quoting here a little. Uh, I assume that all of us have the same experience. Whenever we buy postage stamps, we get a new type, showing an image both beautiful and instructive. Last year, I felt in my capacity as a cook most attracted to a large brown stamp displaying a well-sized hen, which represented, I should say, in a very dignified fashion. I'm quoting this uh, paper of his. Um, the centennial of the American poultry industry, 1848 to 1948. This centennial seemed to indicate that the art of laying eggs successfully was invented in 1848. Moreover, this paltry centennial stamp should no doubt be viewed together with a handsome purple stamp of the same year. A hundred years of the progress of women, 1848 to 1948. Quoting Kantorovich here, Kantorovich, I find it difficult to imagine that the historian of 2048 would miss the connection between the art of laying eggs and the progress of women. He always delighted in being impish and testing the limits. <laughs> I'm going to say we're all boys here, but there's one. So <laughs> Can you say who the women are? Uh, the, 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 they were Ameri famous American uh, suffragettes, uh, Elizabeth Patty Stanton and uh, Lucretia Mott. Uh, I think that's Lucretia Mott. The, the writing isn't too clear. I, I beg your pardon, but I don't know the names of all three of them. They're not household names in any way. Uh, but they, the, uh, there was a Seneca Falls Convention in, in 1848. They were also uh, anti-slavery. But uh, it, it has little to do with uh, the purpose of his um, lecture on postage stamps in history. So what he did then was to go back to the history of coinage. 
because, as he argued, postage stamps and their messages uh, grew out of coinage. Uh, and his point was, and he knew the history of coinage extremely well, was that if you look at ancient Greek coinage, you see that they are not sending messages. Uh, they are not arguing things. They are simply showing you the image that's associated with the city. And the most famous example is the Owl of Athens. Uh, Greek Athenian coins for hundreds of years have nothing but uh, a rather stylized looking owl, the Owl of, owl of Athena. Uh, and if you look at the coins of the Roman Republic, you find that they have the god or goddess who is associated with the family of the consul of that year, and they change regularly, uh, uh, but have no, no propaganda. But starting with the post-Republican period, and the beginning of that period is, of course, the uh, assassination of Julius Caesar, coins start expressing mission, the idea of mission. And so the first example is the Ides of March coin. Uh, propaganda. Uh, these are the daggers that stab Caesar. It's a real Roman coin. Uh, uh, and the liberty cap uh, with the Latin Ides of March. And uh, he showed a lot of, uh, gave illustrations from a number of Roman coins, but uh, I don't have enough time to do that, and so I will uh, simply move on. He said that after uh, Rome, with its idea of mission, uh, the idea of the Roman Empire, the mission of the Roman Empire, and many of them have models, not, uh, uh, Pax, uh, the Roman Empire brings peace, uh, also Libertas, and, uh, in any event, after that, and in the Middle Ages, it, it, it gets lost. Uh, they're all coins that just have crosses on them. Uh, and then gradually rulers, uh, but uh, no, no propaganda. Uh, so he says it's only when you have the idea of mission of a, a political entity do you have the kinds of coins that do that. And he moves to the French Revolution, 1793. Uh, and here we have a typical coin of the French revolutionaries which have as de la loi, uh, the government of law, uh, and uh, an angel writing the constitution. And if you could read the inscription, which you probably can, it does have constitution on it, which is a novelty. Uh, and there is the liberty cap, the same cap that uh, uh, we saw with Brutus and Cassius. Uh, the frigid cap is a li liberty cap. Uh, and there's the rooster for uh, uh, Gallia, uh, for, for France, and the year 1793. So he said that Americans then tried to make coins that were uh, uh, like that, but one is a, uh, uh, a really uh, the laughing stock of a coin, and that's this one, the Indian head nickel, 
which was made in the 30s, uh, and we have an Indian with the word liberty. How inappropriate. <laughs> Liberties were, the Indians were, were nearly exterminated, uh, and those who were left were on uh, uh, reservations. Uh, but this is basically even funnier, because there we have the buffalo and the inscription A Pluribus Unum uh, from many, one. Uh, but that's exactly what happened with the buffaloes. Because there were many, they were roaming the plains. <laughs> and whoever did that didn't realize what a, what a, a stupid thing he was saying in that context. And Kantarov said he really should have had it a pluribus nullum uh, from many none. <laughs> that was his kind of sense of humor uh, and his observation. Because he was always looking at details. He'd look at the coins. He was on the coin. But then he moved to postage stamps. And he said that uh, in uh, the 20th century, postage stamps were the obvious vehicle for the idea of spreading mission because they crossed borders. Uh, and with the, with the French Revolution, you might use a, a French coin in Germany, uh, but um, that stopped uh, with the building of borders and national coinage, but postage stamps would be sent abroad, and so you could have the American ideals uh, expressed. And this was his... Uh, uh, Leading example, uh, this coin, excuse me, a stamp was minted shortly before his talk in 1949, uh, the first uh, a gubernatorial election in Puerto Rico. Uh, and what does it have? It has a, a campesino, a, a working man, who is allowed to vote. Uh, and uh, he's holding up a cogwheel which uh, which was, was great at iconography, so he knew the symbolism of the cogwheel, which is progress, uh, and the ballot. Uh, and that's the American ideal, which is then sent far and wide by means of postage stamps. So America is picking up with the tradition of the Roman Empire. Uh, he said that's not the only example. Uh, for the increase of knowledge and diffusion, for the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men, uh, and that's the Smithsonian Institute. So there's a slogan, and I swear when I, I knew about this, but when I saw it again, I almost flipped, uh, given what's been happening uh, with the President of the United States saying that the press is the public enemy. Uh, but that's not what they said in 1948 really stirring. Uh, somebody should call that to Donald Trump's attention. Uh, uh, so these, these were the examples, and he, he ended his uh, uh, talk on postage stamps. And you, from this you can see what a brilliant historian he was, uh, covering hundreds of years, centuries, uh, and connecting uh, what was going on in America with the Roman Empire and the French Revolution. Uh, 
And so he said, stamps carry on a tradition started by the Roman Empire and that appears wherever the idea of mission appears. And also, this is how he ended his talk, and stamps are a very interesting and most valuable source of information for the historian. So we can see the, the way he would have worked out one of his methods course topics. Uh, I'm almost finished, but I, I don't want to end with that. I, I want to end with uh, uh, one of the scattered quotations. He was uh, constantly quoting in uh, the scrolls of his methods course. And so this one is a letter from Goethe to Herda. And uh, uh, Goethe was a very young man writing to Herda and, and congratulating him on uh, a work uh, that he wrote. And he said, what you do is not simply sifting gold out of the rubbish, but regenerating the rubbish itself to a living plant. Uh, and when you read the work of Ernst Kontrovich, and I encourage you to do so, uh, I think you'll see that he took that motto very seriously. Thank you. <laughs>